Right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this tremendous privilege of gathering together as family. Father, a family you placed together from eternity past so that we might fellowship in your Son's good name on a morning like this, a wintry, blustery morning like this. Thank you for keeping the doors open to this edifice, and thank you for paving the way for those that are able to make it this morning so that we can enjoy this sweet worship that you've set before us, Father. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for your patience, your mercy, your grace, and, of course, your love. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this morning for a variety of reasons, that you bring them back to the fold as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. Father, we pray for those that are still lost in this world, that they repent and believe before it's too late. Most of all, we say thank you for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a wonderful morning like this one a reality for us to enjoy. Thank you. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 34. Much of Thursday's message was regarding what the Bible has to say about the often overlooked supernatural abilities of regenerate man to acquire true wisdom from above. Uh, it's just too easy to forget that it's supernatural. That means it's above nature, above natural man's ability to even perceive the things of God. And so Thursday's message was regarding this topic, this often overlooked supernatural ability of a regenerate man to acquire true wisdom from above. Myself included, I think that we get caught up in the natural senses. I think we get caught up in the natural senses, and if we're not very careful, we get ensnared by one of the oldest traps of all, carnal reasoning. It's one of the oldest traps of all. And if we're not careful, if we're abiding in the natural senses, if you would, we can get caught up in carnal reasoning. I mean, that's pretty much what the world pivots on. But we are not of this world, we're just in it. And so we have to remember, we have to keep our minds set on the things above, not on the things on this earth, where everything's physical, tangible, reasonable, so to speak. Uh, we have to be very careful. It's the oldest, one of the oldest traps of all, carnal reasoning. I hope you all read this week's blog, which is titled, Be Like a Wise Birdie. It spoke to this very thing and putting uh, worldly wisdom in its place. You have to avoid the trap like a, like a bird. Even a bird sees an, a, a trap and, and flies away because even a bird has that kind of wisdom. So it was written, uh, that blog, Be Like a Wise Birdie, it was written as a compliment to what we're about to review here this morning. Up here on the board, here's an excerpt from that blog. Why would we ever esteem the simple-minded? Because that's what the Bible calls the so-called wise of the world. They are simple-minded. 
We don't do it in the natural sense, do we? Why in the world would we do it in the spiritual sense? We don't even, we're not even stupid enough to do it in the natural sense. Why in the world would we do it that way? Why would we ever esteem the simple-minded? Furthermore, why would we ever entertain reasoning with someone who speaks of fantasy and delusion amplified by unfounded self-esteem? In other words, they puff each other up. They puff themselves up and they pat each other on the back and say, that's right, you are one wise son of a gun. You must be because you're a billionaire. You figured out the system. I want what you have. So why would we ever entertain reasoning with someone who speaks of fantasy and delusion amplified by unfounded self-esteem? These are the same people who crucified Jesus Christ because not only did man not esteem him, they resented him for siding with his sovereign father. We must learn to fundamentally reject any so-called wisdom that arises from the ranks of worldliness. We have to remember that if and when we take the world's viewpoint as right, we have placed our trust in ignorance. As soon as we begin taking in what the world has to say, as any form of wisdom, we've put ourselves and we've put our trust in ignorance. Why would we do that? Why would we trust the simple-minded? Why would we ever esteem them? But yet, that's exactly what, at least especially in America. But if I'll tell you what, having traveled to, uh, I don't even know how many countries, a lot of countries overseas, America as a country is elevated. In the rest of the world, a lot of the rest of the world esteems America the way we, in our little microcosm of America, esteem our idols. America is like an idol to a lot of other countries. And it's all garbage. Let's go back to our launching pad on this. Go to Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. It's just so easy to get caught up in that kind of reasoning. We might not get there, but I think on Thursday we touched upon the church at Laodicea. Uh, those are the individuals in Revelation 3 that say, I have no need. <laughs> I've got everything I want right here. Sounds like the average American. I don't need God. I've got everything I need physically. All my senses, all the lusts of the flesh are being satisfied. And if they're not satisfied in my home, then I can just go on the Internet and find a way there or find somebody, you know, and that gets degradingly grotesque the further you go outside of that ring. But all the options are there, in other words. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen those great signs and wonders, yet, in other words, God revealed himself, he's right in front of you, and yet, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. That was our launching pad on Thursday, up here on the board. 
The Lord has not given you, and this is that initial point that I made, we forget that divine wisdom, divine insight, divine perception is supernatural. Supernatural. We cannot climb those stairs. We cannot elevate ourselves, no matter how hard or how much exertion we put into that effort or that endeavor. The Lord has not given you anything spiritually appraised from 1 Corinthians 2.14 requires God's intervention by and through grace. Supernatural. Without this grace, we don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear. And that's borrowing from Deuteronomy 29.4 that we just saw. We don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear the truth, even though we may read it and comprehend it in a natural way. I mean, it's, if you were around during Sodom and Gomorrah, you said, well, that's pretty bad. You didn't have to be a believer to notice that things were going bad. So that, but that's not what we're talking about. Why? What's the idea? What is God up to? That's what divine wisdom looks like. Paul writes about this same phenomenon existing even to this day. Go to Romans 11.7. Romans 11.7. So this concept of, let's call it spiritual blindness, or spiritual deafness, uh, is throughout the whole Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. And the idea that the Spirit's developing here is that God decides. It's God's decision, not man's. Who sees and who hears. Romans 11:7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Who did that? God. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God did. Who hardened the hearts of the unbelieving Jews? God did. Who opened the eyes of others? Want to take a guess? God did. God's the only one that can open your eyes. You're born dead. You're born blind. You're born deaf. Deaf, dumb, and blind. That's how you're born. The only one that can heal you is the great physician. Verse 11, excuse me, verse uh, 11, 8. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And if we think in our own terms, to this day, Jews read the Old Testament. I'm talking about Orthodox Jews, unbelieving Jews. To this day, Jews read the Old Testament and still don't see the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They still don't see him. They still deny Jesus Christ, but yet they have the, the, the very same books that the individuals who believe in Jesus Christ as Jews had. David says, verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap. And that echoes of Proverbs 1, 17, 18, as referenced in the latest blog. Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Here's that scriptural reference up here on the board. Proverbs 1, 17 to 18. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But sinners lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. 
So they set the trap, but they're the ones who end up in it. Let me give you the Amplify just for a little more clarity, if it helps. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but when these people set a trap for others, they lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives and rush to their destruction. Again, verse 8. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, and ears, not to, uh, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Again, this is a very important point we picked up in Deuteronomy 29.4 that said, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Again, the principle up here on the board is the Lord has not given you. In other words, the Lord decides, not man. There's a lot of earnest so-called Christians out there that think if they just, I don't know, read more books, study the Bible more, work harder, do more things that they believe is pleasing to God, that somehow that's what's going to open their eyes. But if they don't have a humble heart, if their heart hasn't been, if they're not born again, if they're not regenerate, it doesn't matter how many books they read, they're just going to get tired. It doesn't matter how often or how much exertion they put forth in that endeavor. It's never going to happen until God makes it happen. That's a really important point, a really important point, because if we don't remember that, we fall for that oldest trap in the book, carnal reasoning. We start believing that people from the world, since they've read the Bible too, and they're intelligent, can start reasoning for us and start telling us our business. That's very dangerous ground. We're going to get into that a little bit more. It came up a little bit on Thursday as well. The Lord has not given you anything spiritually appraised requires God's intervention by, uh, by and through grace. Without this grace, we don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear the truth, even though we may read it and comprehend it in a natural way. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, you could just go to the wisdom books and there's a lot of people. If I put, you know, some of the passages up here that are in, say, uh, Proverbs and make a, you know, a, a poster, an 18 by 12 poster, and put the proverb down here with an eagle flying over a mountain, I could probably sell it to a fair number of unbelievers. Because they'd look at it and say, oh yeah, integrity or you know, truthfulness or, or honesty or hard work or whatever it is that's being um, expounded upon in the Bible. They might actually say, that makes sense. I agree and buy the thing. Does that mean they understand what you and I understand supernaturally? No, not at all. The prophet Ezekiel had to deal with this phenomenon also. Go to Ezekiel 12, 1 to 2. Ezekiel 12, 1 to 2. <clears throat> Again, not a novel concept. I mean, this idea of, you know, deafness and blindness is not novel in the Bible. In fact, it's everywhere in the Bible. Ezekiel 12, 1 to 2. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house, who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, 
for they are a rebellious house. In other words, their heart is not with God. Therefore, God says, no way. I'm not going to bless you with hearing or sight because you are rebellious. Jesus is often quoted in the Bible as saying, go to Matthew 11.15. Matthew 11.15. I'm going quickly because these are points of review from Thursday. A little more meat left on this bone that we need to get to. But this establishes at least the presence of this phrase. Matthew eleven fifteen. This time it's Jesus. He often said these words when he was uh, closing up a parable. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If your ears work, if God has enabled them supernaturally. How about Mark 4, 9? Mark 4, verse 9. Mark 4, 9 says, And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then up here in the board, Oh, I don't have it. Mark 4.23, up here on the board. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And I ch specifically chose these. These are not just repeats, you know, across the gospel. These are different parables, different situations. So Jesus said this frequently. Now, I want to show you something. Uh, the prelude to the parable of parables, which is, of course, the parable of the sower and the seeds. Go to Matthew 13.10. Matthew 13, verse 10. I want to show you, Jesus basically reveals to his disciples why God does this thing. Proverbs 13, 10. Why he even told parables that would have confounded those without supernatural abilities. Matthew 13, 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? It's a good question, right? All of a sudden, Jesus says, okay, I'm done. I'm going to start speaking in parables now. Why do you speak to them in parables? This is a, a shift, a fundamental shift even in his ministry. If you follow the ministry of Jesus Christ, there was a fundamental shift in his ministry around this time. He said, basically, you know, we would paraphrase it as, all right, to, to hell with you guys. I'm shaking my feet of dust, you know. I'm just going to say, all right, that's it. I'm going to start speaking in ways that you don't even understand anymore. I tried to come at you straight on. You tasted the truth. You didn't want it. So now I'm going to start speaking to my disciples in a very intimate way that you can't even understand. Because my Father in Heaven says, no way. You don't have the eyes or the ears, and you're too stupid to understand these things. So the disciples said, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered, to the, answered them, verse 11, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Jesus talked about the kingdom. He said right at the beginning of his ministry, right? Repent! The kingdom is, is here, is, up, is upon us, is at hand. <laughs> First thing he says, the kingdom of heaven is at, is at hand. Repent. Not like he didn't talk about the kingdom. But look what he says here. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. 
For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. In their ears, with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. What's the problem? They're a rebellious generation. They're arrogant. That's what we read about the, the Israel over and over and over again. Would understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, back to his disciples, because they see, and your ears because they hear. Hmm. And you could apply that to yourself. Blessed are your eyes because you see, and your ears because you hear. Think about this. Many will argue that no matter who you are, believer or unbeliever, the Bible is able to be understood at face value. A lot of people argue this. I've read the Bible. You know, it's just not for me. Do you understand the Bible? Yeah. Unbelievers will especially suppose this falsity as the foundation of their dismissal. Why? Because even unbelievers can't argue that dismissing something in admittant or admitted ignorance is stupid or isn't stupid. In other words, how's anybody ever going to dismiss something if they've never even taken the time to even give it a cursory look? If, if I say to you, hey, that new rug you got is stupid. And you say, uh, you've never seen it. It's stupid anyways. Even I would have to say, I'd have to go to your house, look at the rug, even if I was, you know, premeditated. For me to win any argument or any, have any angle in this argument whatsoever, I have to at least have firsthand experience with the rug, right? I'd have to say, I saw it. Like I said, it's ugly. So even unbelievers know that they can't argue without some exposure to the Bible. So unbelievers will especially suppose that the Bible can be understood at face value because that literally becomes the foundation of their dismissal. A contemporary outspoken atheist like, say, Richard Dawkins, some of you know that guy, will tell you that he's read the Bible cover to cover and has landed upon the reasonable conclusions that he has, and he's an atheist. Dawkins is admittedly an intelligent man, but what the Bible reveals to him is drastically different than what it reveals to a believer. Because he doesn't have ears to hear or eyes to see. 
He's reading the words, but he's no different than the Jews that Jesus Christ belittled and berated and said, you're looking in these scriptures, but the scriptures speak about me. Obviously, you're reading the words, but it's not sinking in. Something's wrong here. You must be blind. So, while Dawkins is admittedly intelligent, it doesn't reveal to him what it reveals to say, you, a believer. He might concede, even, that certain passages contain wisdom that is relatable to man, and he'd be correct. And he may even recoil at the thought of crucifying a man on a cross, for murder may be repulsive to his natural reasoning. But without the context and faith in Christ's work on the cross or the primitive reason for the word of truth, for example, the, the parables, let's say, for starters, Mr. Dawkins might as well know nothing at all. And I did a little research on this guy. Um, it's often interesting. I do this a lot. Whenever I uh, see a, you know, like a famous atheist, I say, okay, why? Where, how did they end up here, in other words? So almost without fail, this happens. It's interesting to note that folks like Dawkins were actually raised up in Christianity before they apostatized. This is one of the reasons why they are so, let's call them, quote, dangerous because they've seen the rug. See? If someone comes up to me and asks, Hey, Ed, what do you think of that rug? Oh, I saw it. It's ugly. Bad investment. Bad. But if I had never seen it, what am I going to say? I hear it's bad. And I'm like, hmm. But if I've seen it, and I have a case for dismissing it, first-hand knowledge of it, so to speak, then I can say, Oh, it's... So this is the reason why these people are so, quote, dangerous. It's because most of them start out with something like this. Well, I was raised a Christian, read my Bible, etc., and then I got smart. For example, Dawkins was confirmed into the Church of England at the age of 13, which means that he likely heard some truth from the Word of God which means that the Holy Spirit would have at least been exciting, let's call it, stimulating, some form of humility, encouraging, trying to, the, God might have been impressing his own will, because remember, God's will is that everyone's saved and comes to the knowledge of him, impressing that on his young soul at 13, So the Holy Spirit would have at least been exciting some form of humility in him prior to his utter rejection of the gospel truth. And this is what the Bible describes. Go to Hebrews 6, 4. Hebrews 6, verse 4. The Bible talks about these kinds of individuals. They've, they've tasted the truth, in other words. Well, I, I mean, I was, you know, I, I was in the faith until I was 13. And then I smartened up. 
Hebrews 6, 4. What does the Bible say about these kinds of uh, apostates? For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted, that word is selected on purpose, it's possible to taste something without eating it, remember, have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, God came right upon them and said, this is the gospel truth. And I know you can hear me. Everybody can hear the gospel truth from God the Holy Spirit at some point in their life because God would be unjust sentencing anybody to the lake of fire for all of eternity if they hadn't. The judgment would be uh, foundationless. So this is what the Bible is teaching us. I know you've tasted it because it was your creator who said, Hey, Mr. Richard Dawkins, here I am. What do you think? I think the best thing for you is to humble yourself by the mighty hand of God. Repent, and I'll give you saving faith. All part of this conversion process. I'm not saying that all happens in one instant of time, but it happens. Again, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to the Son of God and put him to open shame. The picture here is that in verse 6 essentially speaks about the positive, assertive movement of the apostate. In other words, they said, I have decided I'm going to blaspheme the Spirit. I'm going to call him a liar. Because like I just described, God in his perfect integrity says, I know you can hear me. I know you understand this moment right now. I'm telling you what the truth is about your depravity and about your need for a Savior. I'm impressing this on you. I know you've tasted it because I put it in your mouth and I gave you whatever faculty, whatever hint of it. I know this happens. So Hebrews 6, 6 is interesting because it essentially speaks about the positive assertive movement of the apostate. In effect, they have expressed a deliberate, malicious spurning of Jesus Christ, a sort of joining forces against him. That's the picture here. I know you've tasted it, because I was the one who gave you the, the taste. But with your own free will, You've joined forces. You've asserted yourself against God the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, you've rejected the gospel. You've heard it. You've seen it. No questions. And you said no. Not only that, you've joined forces against him. Matthew 12, 31, Jesus refers to this as the blasphemy of the Spirit. You're basically calling the Spirit a liar. The Spirit convicts an unregenerate person the need for the gospel and all the details that we studied over the years now. 
And they say, no. They say, you're a liar. I don't need you. I don't need Jesus Christ. I've got everything I need right here. What do I need? Verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. You see the, you see the change? But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. In other words, he shifts his attention now to actual believers and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So one of the first great blessings of salvation is the ability to acquire divine wisdom now that we can hear and see truth. That's the distinction we're making here this morning. Up here on the board, things that accompany salvation, remember, supernatural abilities, things that accompany salvation, being given certain faculties, having your eyes open, your ears opened, things that accompany salvation, a la our recent blog, Assurance of Salvation is by Grace Through Faith. That was the blog before this last one. Hopefully you read that one as well. Because we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we are able to discern the truth about our lives. Even when we are suffering, we understand why. Even when we are suffering, we understand why. Doesn't mean we're not going to kick a little bit against the net. Doesn't mean we're going to not, in a, you know, in our fleshly ways, pray for relief rather than deliverance. Doesn't mean we're, gonna, we're not going to do that thing. These things we know all happen. But you know what? Now we have spiritual discernment. We begin to see and discern the truth about our lives, even when we're suffering. That's not possible because that's a spiritually appraised thing. That's not possible for an unregenerate person. So if you're suffering, why in the world would you go to an unbeliever for counsel? And I know some of you do. Why in the world would you pick up the phone or email? You know what it's about? It's about you, that's why. You know that you're going to get the fleshly answer from the fleshly friend that you want to hear, that your flesh wants to hear. Oh, it's so undeserved. Really now? Oh, you know, it's not your fault. Really? Oh, it's this, you know, it's... You call your fleshly... It's the funniest thing, right? If you're a parent, you know how this works, too. Kids go to the mom for one thing, they go to the dad for other stuff. We do it in our own lives. If we, want some, if we have something fleshly we want to get done, who do we call? Our fleshly friends. Hey, what do you think about this idea? That's a great idea. You want some help? If you call me, you're going to be like, uh-uh. I ain't calling that guy. He's going to tell me straight up the truth, and I'm not going to like it. So I'm never going to call him on this one. But when I need spiritual healing, when I need ointment for my soul, then I'll call the pastor. Pastor, you know, I was just thinking, you know, God is good. When I want to be a naughty jackass and a brat, I call my fleshly friends. And we all sit on this fence, don't we? 
We have friends over in this bucket and friends over in this bucket. And it's gross. We should never take counsel from a ship of fools, from simple-minded people. Why would we ever do that? Unless you're working in your flesh. Nonetheless, a little sidebar, food for thought. Again, because we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we are able to discern the truth about our lives. We may not even like it. Sometimes we love it. Sometimes it's really reassuring. Like, I thought that particular blog was very reassuring. Assurance of salvation is by grace through faith. I don't know how you would read that and not be overjoyed. Not sure. So there are moments on each side. Truth always discerns, though. Remember, it's the Machaira, Hebrews 4.12. It's the Word of God, and it cuts all the way to the, to, to the marrow of the bone. It cuts as deep as possible and says, no. Well, yeah. Even when suffering, we understand why. Or rejoicing. I don't want to reiterate all the scripture in that blog. That was a lot. But suffice to say here that the Bible says that things accompany salvation. Things accompany real things. Things we can understand. Things we can point to. They're not all ambiguous or abstract. They're real. Things accompany salvation. Starting with but not limited to God-given faculties of spiritual sight and hearing. For we believers, having these faculties is a blessing among blessings because it gives us access to eternal wisdom. And here's the thing on all of this. God is the gatekeeper here. God is the gatekeeper. So no matter how hard Mr. Dawkins and his atheist friends try to, you know, crack the Bible code, they won't be able to. It's impermeable for them. The only person with the key is God, and He only gives it to those He has chosen. The self-assertive nature of the human flesh will propose that it too is in possession of said key. But it is not. They say, I can read the Bible too. Good for you. This is why Jesus spoke about pretenders who claim they have figured out the Bible. You know, they, they have the keys to unlocking it, but are nothing more than thieves. That's the visual we get. That Jesus stands, the Lord stands at the gate, and nobody comes through except he lets them through. But there are pretenders, you see, who say, well, can't go through that gate, because there he sits. So, but I want access to the people on the inside, because I'm evil and self-asserting, and misery loves company. So I'm going to climb up over the side. Jesus spoke about these pretenders who claim they have figured out the Bible, but they're nothing more than thieves. A thief... What? Do you give the, hey, do you give your, your, the, the key to your front door to a thief? That's the whole point, right? So if they want to get into your house and meddle with your business, what do they do? They go through a window. Or they jump the fence in the back, come through the, the sliding door, whatever, you know, is open to them. But it's not through the front door. It's not the honest approach. It's not the capable approach. It's not the approach that's welcomed. There's always some maliciousness to it. 
and malice. Jesus warned his disciples to be aware of those without true knowledge of him, but present themselves as benefactors. Go to John 10.1. I can tell you right now, without fail, everybody in this room has somebody, at least one person in their life, that is a thief, that proposes themselves, maybe even somebody in this church, I don't know, because you guys devour each other. You all, everybody in here has somebody in their life that proposes to be a benefactor to their life, that presents themselves as uh, good for you. But they're nothing more than a thief. John 10.1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, remember, see the imagery here, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Maybe by now some of you are wondering, have we strayed away from our primary course of study? I mean, how does this relate to the deceitfulness of sin? This thread is most definitely related to the deceitfulness of sin because if we aren't careful, we might fall into the trap that this week's blog outlines. If we're not careful, who do you think the thieves and the robbers are? People that come in from the side and say, I have another salvation for you. I have another, quote-unquote, Jesus. His name's not Jesus, or maybe I'll lie to you and say it is, and it's, I'll morph him that way. But I have another way of salvation for you. They did not come through the front gate, because they don't have keys. They came over the side, and have access through the side to you. And they're robbers and thieves, and they have nothing good for you at all. But with the allure of the world, especially in America, with the lusts of the flesh that are developed from childhood in each of us, it's a very strong connection, isn't it? It's why that one person you might have thought about five seconds ago when I was mentioning that one person in your life, it's why they have that connection to you. It's why they're so drawing to you, because somewhere in the back of you there's a lust pattern for whatever it is that they're offering, even though it's not righteous. That could be a boss, that could be a friend, could be a, uh, I hate to use the word, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. You know my feelings on all of that. Um, whatever it is in your life, uh, there's some lust pattern that gets you to walk into the trap. Think of the bird. I want that worm. A little worm, right? Hanging in the trap. If they, all they can see is that thing that they really want, the worm. I want that worm. What do they do? They take the worm and then the trap's on them. Why, be like a wise little birdie. Say, oh, 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 oh I see, I know, I've been that one. I've seen that worm before. I know that trick. Fly away. 
fly away. I've seen that trick way too many times. I've been deceived by sin way too many times. On that note, I'm going to fly away. Because that worm is evil. That trap is already set, waiting for me. I'm not having it. We've got to be very careful that we don't fall into those kinds of traps. Now, that's all figurative, of course. And but here's the reality. What's the practical thing that the Spirit's trying to say? We might begin to reason. That's the worm. We might begin to reason with deaf, dumb, and blind people. That's the great danger. We might fall into that trap. We might begin to reason with them. And yet, this is precisely the vector the sin nature wishes to place on us. In the meantime, the Spirit keeps giving us reminders, such as, go to Psalm 51, 17. Psalm 51, 17. I think, obviously, if you, as we were just reading uh, John, Jesus' um, analog there uh, with the sheep and the gatekeepers, a lot of those people, the, the, one of the primary objectives is to um, identify false teachers. So on a Sunday morning like this, there's a great allure to certain kinds of pulpits, even though they're false. Because, you know, as long as there's a cross on the top of the building, right, and everybody's dressed their Sunday best and nobody seems to be barking about what doesn't seem to be right coming from that pulpit, well, I'm just going to run with it because it's not offensive to my flesh. And I kind of like it. And this moron up here is telling me everything I wanted to hear. Be religious and then become happy. We're going to get to that in a moment. That's what the average Christian church teaches now. The more religious you are, the happier you'll be. Huh. You have to show me that one in the Bible. Here's what I see. For starters, Old Testament wisdom. Psalm 51.17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Hey, wait a minute. That don't sound too happy. Well, that's the thing. Your flesh isn't supposed to be happy. Remember James? Let your happiness be turned into mourning. Let your joy be crushed. You know that joy that you have in the flesh? The joy that's being experienced right now? Sadly, in many Christian churches right now because someone's stroking their ego from a pulpit. If they've even gotten to that point yet. Some of them are still singing with a rock band. You know, they're on song 52 at this point. Everybody's emotionally charged. Woo! The sacrifice of God, broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So here we have a very picture of humility. And as the spirit brought out on Thursday, let's connect the tissue back here up on the board. True humility begins and ends with submission to the Word of God, not the opinions of carnal reasoners, not the opinions of those people who are held in high esteem, although the Bible calls them simple-minded, 
not the opinions of people who are stuck here at the natural level when we're seeking supernatural wisdom. Why in the world would we put anything in anything other than the Word of God? If our conversations, if our relationships, if our thoughts, if our waking moments aren't embedded in this right here, what are we doing? Besides setting ourselves up for failure. Because arrogance always strays away from the Word of God. Haven't tried that? Oh, I've had a, a thousand little experiments in my own life. Go a few days without the Word of God. Go a few days without really praying in earnest. You know what starts happening? All of a sudden I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, why am I, what am I doing? Like, why am I thinking this way? Why is everything in my body pointing to something unholy, ungodly, that I know isn't good for me? What? Oh, the worm. Oh, That's what happens. I lose sight. You lose sight of what actually is righteous. What washes over you? What's the only thing powerful enough to wash over you? Here you go, right here. That's why if you're having a bad moment, if you're struggling, pick up your Bible and read it. Don't pick up a book about romance. Don't turn on, you know, some ridiculous show on Netflix. You know, take your mind off things. No, 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 that's dangerous. Because all Satan says is, oh, great, I get more time. This person's not even turning to the Word of God for uh, strength, for the ability to overcome to be washed. They're not turning to the Word of God. Satan says, oh, this is perfect. As long as they don't turn to the Word of God, I'm good. As long as they call up this friend, huh? The fleshly one? Oh, dude, yeah, I'm in. Rather than the one who's going to tell them the truth. Hey, why don't you pick up your Bible? What did you think of that, um, what do you think of that blog the other day? Ooh. You know, I was so busy, I haven't been able to read it yet. Really. You had enough time to do all those other things, just not take the grace of God. You know, I've just been so busy. Really? You're so busy you can't read the Bible. Yeah, that's why I have the little devotional on the toilet. Well, what if you have it in a regular week? What if you're not on the toilet that often? You're not even getting a devotional. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with you? What do you mean? There's no excuse. If you don't have time for the Word of God, what do you really honestly and truthfully propose you have time for? Arrogance. Arrogance. That's all it is. Just call it spade a spade. Let's just get this out, out of the way. You don't have to admit it to me. You leave it to the Lord. Just get this on the table. You're an arrogant SOB. Yeah, I said it. Sunday. Son of a booger. You're an arrogant one. Just admit it. And then God says, okay, good. We're at least at humility for the fundamental sake of humility. Now we have something to work with. But don't lie. and Don't make up excuses. Excuses are so vile. Excuses are so gross. Justification for sin is so ugly, I almost can't even take it anymore. It's so ugly. And please, do me a favor. Don't don't do this to me anymore. I'm 50 years old almost this year coming. Don't give me a stupid excuses with the tears coming down your face because I'm not going to respond 
probably the way you want me to. Don't cry to me about how, uh, you know, you don't have this, you don't have that, you don't have this, and you don't have that. Because I'm just going to keep saying, how are you doing with um, the Word of God? You know, I haven't had time. Really, you kept up with all lessons? Well, no well. But, no but. The reason you're miserable, ready? Spoiler alert. The reason you're miserable is because you're arrogant. Because you haven't submitted to the Word of God. It's because you have picked up the phone way too many times, once is more than enough, and called up your fleshly friends. Some of you have a little stable of friends that you think nobody else knows about, and that's cool, but God knows. You have a little stable of friends that you rely on for fleshly needs, and then you come to church in your Sunday best and think everybody's fooled, but God's not fooled. Right? I know, right? Happy Sunday. There are no excuses. Humility, true humility, begins and ends with submission. Submission to the Word of God. For we believers, our ultimate authority is the Word, not the Word of man, as Paul described it. Go to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. Yeah, the spiritual life's actually... Pretty darn easy. It really is. If something ruffles your feathers or, you know, something's trying to distract you or whatever, just go to the Word. Just pick up the Bible and start reading. Yeah. First Corinthians 2.1 And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Why? Because Paul knew the flesh, Right? He said, if I come in and start speaking in these really big words, they're going to do what they did to Apollos, right? They're going to say, oh, I'm from Apollos. Because look how, oh, I'm from Paul now. Because look how smart Paul is. And then they get, so, people are so stupid. You know, my pastor is better than yours. He has way better vocabulary. He uses words I don't, I've never even heard of before. Five, six, seven hyphenated, multisyllabic words. It's unbelievable. He's got to be a genius. I'm following him. Your guy's dumb. He's bald. He's almost 50. Right? He's whatever. It's so ridiculous. That's why Paul said, no, 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 no. I know I'm smart. The Lord knows I'm smart, but I cannot do this to these people because they're weak. So I don't want them to look at the person because if I start, you know, dazzling you with my vocabulary, by the way, I could do that. Just saying, I'm being humble. If I start dazzling you with my vocabulary, you all of a sudden start thinking I'm a swell guy. You're missing the point. I don't want you to think that wisdom's from man. May it never be. 1 Corinthians 2.1 And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all He wanted to know. That's not difficult. It doesn't require big words. Jesus Christ, the smartest, most incredible, amazing, wise person of all time, never spoke down to people. Ever. Spoke simple. Used simple language. What do you think about that? I know what I think. Verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. You see, no carnal reasoning not getting into the weeds, try to prove to you this or that. 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. In other words, I'm not going to you know, side with you know, Steve Jobs and Oprah and Hollywood, etc., etc. I'm not going to even, I'm going I'm to stay away from that language even. Who are passing away. Think about it, they're dead in their trespasses. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rules of this age has understood. For if they had understood uh, it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, God decides, God decides who and what is perceived by individuals in this world, not man. Not man. God decides. Jesus referred to heavenly, up here on the board, as heavenly truth. John 5, 34. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. This is Jesus saying this. It's not from man. Do not think it's from man. The Bible speaks clearly about alternative wisdom. James 3.15 up here on the board. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. When you pick up that phone, you ready? When you pick up that phone and you talk to this person, it's demonic. Because they do not have divine wisdom. I don't care if their intention, I don't care if they say on that phone coming out of the ear thing, I love you. I only want what's best for you. In their senseless world, they're not lying. But in your supernatural world, they're evil. The person who's saying that is a selfish lover is not in it for Christ, could care less about your deliverance. Do you understand that difference there? You don't pick up the phone and expect anything good to come out of an evil source. Anything. Even if it sounds good. Even if it's a quote-unquote appropriate for the moment. You ring up this. Or if you want to, and you trust somebody, someone who honestly tries to represent this. Not this person. That's demonic. They don't have any real wisdom to give you. What are they going to give you? Another option? Isn't that what most of these people give you? Oh, I'm so sorry, sweetie. It didn't work out for you this time. We'll try, try this instead. And then a month later, oh, I'm so sorry it didn't work out. You know, I've been doing this. Try this. For some of you, it's ridiculous relationships. For some of you, it's some diet of, you pick it, food, other stuff, I don't know. There's always some new fashionable thing going on, right? There's always a new option. It's always exchange out the old for the new, and you play this game in dysfunction junction and expect different results. And even Einstein's laughing at you. That's the definition of insanity. Why? 
Because that wisdom is demonic. That wisdom is literally designed to capture you, to keep you in chains. You see? To keep you in the natural state, even your mind, to keep you down here, rather than the supernatural, which is where deliverance is. You might find temporary relief over here. Oh, change. Move. Change jobs. Change whatever. Friends. Change. Change your hair. Change your whatever. Just keep changing something and keep moving because then there's relief. You see, you can leave that other thing behind and there's relief. That's not, that's demonic. That's literally not biblical. That's not godly. That's man giving solutions to man, or woman to woman. A world to man, a world to woman. You get the point. Those are not solutions. Those are demonic, earthly, natural wisdom. Again, James 3.15 This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. So, what is the solution and the perspective to any and all confusion, worldly reasoning, and contention causes? I'll give you a couple of scriptures just to chew on. Colossians 3.5a in the English Standard Version. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Mark 8.35. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake... And the Gospels will save it. Now we're coming upon where we closed on Thursday, and I can't believe it, I'm almost out of time. If you believe that true humility begins and ends with submission to the Word of God, listen, if you believe, which you should at this juncture, that true humility begins and ends with submission to the Word of God, then finish the sentence. And I say that figuratively. Finish the sentence. Follow this out to completion in your souls. Okay, okay. Submit to the Word of God. Finish the sentence. What does that mean? Because you could just say that and be vapid, right? You just mean, I submit. Right? It's like a a, a wife that says, I submit to my husband, and then runs off doing whatever, you know, ungodly acts or whatever. That's not submission. That's just lip service. So finish the sentence in your soul. You believe that humility begins and ends with submission to the Word of God, then carry this thing out. Maybe this friendly reminder will prompt the correct response in your soul. Obedience. Ah, the O word. I know, right? I'll just blame it on John Newton, who's dead. He said this. Obedience is the best test of sincerity. Okay, you read this. You read this and you obey, then you know you're sincere. If you read this, and you disobey, then you know you're not sincere. Read it and obey, you're humble. Read it and disobey, you're arrogant. God gives grace to who? So why in the world would he ever deliver you if you're that arrogant? If you read this, and you have the very source of life, the Word of God, in your palms, and then the supernatural ability the supernatural ability to understand what's contained in this word, and you say no. No, thank you. 
What do you expect? Obedience is the best test of sincerity. Feelings are various, transient, and often deceitful. Remember, we're on deceitfulness of sin. But a broken, humble spirit and an upright walk evidence the finger of God. Other things may be and are often counterfeited. You may feel one way, and God's saying, I don't care. You may feel pain because of this or that. Good. Stop praying for relief, because relief would mean I'm going to send you back to your little ship of fools. I don't want you to go back to your ship of fools. I want you to come with me. So I'm not going to give you relief. Well, then I'll just play the little game. I'll just find something new to distract me from the thing you wouldn't relieve me from, God. <laughs> I'll just find another thing. And Satan's like, good, I'll just keep giving one. Here, here's another one. Here's another one. For some of you, it's relationships. For some of you, it's jobs. For some of you, it's friends. For some of you, it's food or dieting or, or exercise or business. You know, whatever it is. You guys all have your own little vices, right? And you just cycle through them. Oh, that one didn't work out. Let me, let me go to the next one. Oh, that one didn't work out. Let me go to the next one. God's like, when are we going to quit this? When are we going to quit with this dysfunction stuff? Are you reading the Bible? Do you know what it says about all that stuff that you keep cycling through? I mean, you do read it, right? You do see what it says in Holy Scripture, right? La, 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 la. Right? How you doing? This way? Oh, this way. This way, right? <laughs> you ready? No extra charge. The great litmus test for humility is obedience. So just know that. The great litmus test for humility is obedience. God gives grace to the humble. I just want one point of concentration, and I promise I'll close, because it's so connected to this message. Concentrate. On Thursday, the Spirit brought up something that wasn't even in my notes. And I need to drive this point home to you because it is a critical perspective that we all must own. If we allow the kings and queens, the elect, the elite of our society, to begin dictating to us what Christianity actually is, we are absolutely doomed. If we let those people, you know, the simple-minded, the idiots, the educated morons, if we let those people dictate to us what Christianity is. I heard a, a potential presidential uh, nominated person in the running say, religion needs to change. I said, are you kidding me? If we allow the kings and queens of our society to begin dictating to us what Christianity actually is, we are absolutely doomed. For example, if I were to ask the average unbeliever what they think of religion in general, unbelievers, I'm likely to get the following type of response. And feel free to map this back to media or their own speculations or a mixture of both. Up here on the board, the world's take on religion. And of course, Christianity at that point is just lumped in, but you know what I'm saying. The world's take. Well, it's like a formula. 
do this and you'll be happy. That's the way the world looks at religion. That's the lie. Read Romans 1. Creature credit, right? Do this stuff and you'll be happy. I might consider it. I'm still quoting these people. I might consider it if and when I get down and out. But right now, I'm feeling pretty darn good. All on my own. I don't need your God. In other words, if the, if the end objective is to feel good, and I already feel good on my own, I, I guess I don't need a Savior. I don't need another source of feeling good because in my paradigm for religion, uh, I'm all set. I don't need the source. I already have a source. It's called me or my friends or the world. But I already get my quote-unquote happiness is sourced somewhere else in my formula, even though the formula is false, for Christians anyways, for true Christians anyways. Religion, do this, you'll be happy. Well, if someone perceives themselves as already happy, they don't need the religion, I guess. It seems the whole world has decided that Christianity falls into this same ungodly viewpoint. The great perversion isn't the dismissive attitude. That might be what gets your attention and gets you blinded and gets you distracted. We see Satan smarter than that. The great perversion isn't the dismissive attitude of those people. You know, I don't need your God. But rather the presupposition that Christianity is about, you know, quote, feeling good. What do you think an unbeliever who's sitting in the car with you when you have K-Love on, what do you think the unbeliever is saying? They like this music because they feel good. Positive, encouraging K-Love. Right? And from their viewpoint, I'm not saying you can't get spiritual truth out of that. I'm not saying that. But from their viewpoint, from their seat, in the passenger seat, they're saying, I know why they're listening to this, because it's all like, quote-unquote, encouraging. They feel good. All the songs are like, you know, telling them how great God is and lifting them up and blah, 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 and they have Jesus and His love, and they get these stories, you know. So from their perspective, it fits. Right? It's one of the dangers of a lopsided ministry, but whatever. In their perspective, it fits, you see. Christianity, like every religion in their book, is about feeling good. Well, since we are Christ, Christians, Christians, maybe we ought to take a stand for truth on this one. What do you think? Does the Bible actually teach us that, or what the world supposes Christianity really is? Does the Bible actually teach us that? Do these things and you will be temporally happy? I mean, and, and the more you do these things, the less suffering and the happier you'll be? Does the Bible actually teach that? You think it you think it does based on the average Christian or even what the average unbeliever thinks about Christianity. You think that's what it teaches because that's what Satan wants you to adopt. Does the Bible actually teach us what the world supposes Christianity really is? Does the Bible teach us that? No. No, a, quote, formula for relief from suffering, and therefore a formula for happiness. Is that what the Bible teaches us? No. No. We will be healed, but that's very different. 
Go to Isaiah 53, verse 3. This is the point. I, I know I'm taking you a little long, but hey, live, live with it. We're just riding out the storm out there. I think it's probably stopped. Brendan, it stopped? Good, you can look. What are you doing? Don't open the shades. Sheesh. Man. <laughs> Did it stop, though, seriously? Look, for real. <laughs> Poor guy. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Are we supposed to take this formula and adopt it? Here's what, here's what, here's how the Bible describes Jesus Christ. You ready? Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. Okay. If I told you right now, if I came out, some of you could care less, but say you and I have a, at least a decent relationship, and I walked up this close to your face and said, you know what? I despise you. No, I'm serious. I, I despise who you are. And then I left in my car and drove away. I'm going to go out on a limb and say some of you are going to be rattled for a while. Some of you are going to be pretty upset that someone said that to you. Right? Okay. How would you like if the whole stinking world despised you? And you were perfect. Okay, just keep going. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Most of you spend inordinate amounts of time so people recognize your face, so people like your face. How would you like it if you did everything you could? You were perfect and people despised your face. Okay, that's our prototype. You do call yourself a Christian, right? I don't even like the term, but that's for another day. But I mean, you do call yourself a Christian. You do call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, there's your prototype. Any questions? That's your prototype. And Jesus Christ said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. The world hates you because you love me. You mean the kings and queens hate me? Of course they do. But they tell me they love me. That's because they want your money. That's because they want your, your approbation. They want your praise. It's self-serving. But, but, but when I pick up this phone and call my ship of fools, they all tell me they love me. No kidding, because they're selfish lovers. They tell you whatever you need to hear. Some of them are going to lie to your face. Say, oh, I'm a Christian too. They could care less about Jesus Christ. Wake up. Wake up. Stop playing pretend. Stop justifying your ridiculous behavior by saying, oh, but my friends over here, they're all, they all say they're believers. They're all Christians, and who am I to judge? Jeez, I don't know. Do they really love Jesus Christ? Are they really trying to trap you and say, hey, come with me and do these things, and you can get more happiness and less suffering? Are they presenting a trap to you? Yes. I, I don't even know them, and I can affirm, yes. Because that's all they know. And you're an idiot for following them, for listening to them, for taking their advice. Here's what the Bible says about your prototype. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. 
Let me give you a poem from Philip P. Bliss up here in the board. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. I should say ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. I hope you see who the Spirit's getting at, uh, what the Spirit's getting at here. Please abide in this truth. Jesus Christ wasn't just called. Listen to me, please. I know it's running long. Jesus Christ wasn't just called a man who had sorrow in his heart. He was described, his person, the Word of God describes his person as a, quote, man of sorrows. It's his identity. He wasn't just sorrowful once in a while. He was a man of sorrows, intimately acquainted with grief. Man, that does not sound like what the average Christian church is peddling nowadays at all. doesn't sound like the world's definition of religion at all. And to someone on the outside, it's horrific. Why would anybody follow that religion, that Bible? You see, because naturally it doesn't make any sense. But supernaturally, where there's a joy, we have a joy set before us. And we endure the, the physical planes of suffering. We do that thing. We have a transcendent nature within us, a new creature, one that's attracted by much greater things than anything on this world, or anything these jackasses will ever tell you, or the so-called kings and queens of our society. Incredible what people do, so-called Christians, how they even live their lives. It looks nothing like Jesus Christ, but yet they call themselves a Christian. They have zero humility, zero obedience, fleeting love at best, always internal, always turned towards self. Heck, they even go to church because of self, not for Christ, not of love for Christ. They have no affection, no affinity for Jesus Christ. Not my Lord, because that's what he looks like. So this is an entire characterization, man of sorrows, this is an entire characterization of the man, not just a feature in his life that he had to endure from time to time. I'll close this way. You know what? Read Philippians 2. He humbled himself. Okay? And it says we ought to be just like him. He came here perfect. And he had a his heart was broken. Walks among these people, he says, my heart is ripped out. Everywhere he walked, he would have seen this thing. His heart was broken. And you know what? He wanted to save the lost. He didn't come with some weird formula. Here I am. <laughs> Party with me and you'll be happy. 
He didn't say that. He says, my heart's broken. I came here to seek and save that which is lost. You know what? He wanted to obey. He wanted to obey whatever his father deemed righteous in order to heal the sick. And he wept over such things, my dear friends. He wept over them. It's a lot to chew on. A lot to reflect on. Because I'm telling you, that's your Lord. If he is your Lord, that's him. You're looking at him. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to grow up, to wake up, to realize, based on faculties that you've given us, supernatural faculties, Father, that allow us to understand and to have true wisdom about your saving grace, the Son whom you've sent, the one who loves us in ways unfathomable to those who proclaim love for us from the world. Thank you for delivering us. Thank you for allowing us to go without certain relief in our lives, Father, because that is what removes us from dysfunction. Father, thank you for pointing these things out with such clarity in our lives and our souls. We just ask that we take these things, we chew on them, take them out to a a world that's just dead and decaying. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.